Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll have information about the state's push to get more of Ohio's nearly 3 million Medicaid recipients vaccinated against the coronavirus. There's a critical blood shortage, and I'll discuss that with someone from the American Red Cross. In about 20 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend presents a number of topics, including the race next year for governor. It's beginning to take shape. Voter reform efforts by Republicans at the Ohio State House. The legislative fight over where city income taxes should be paid by people who are working for a company in a city that is different than the one where that worker lives, who has now been working from home during the pandemic. And more. And in about 45 minutes, I'll wrap up the hour talking about the increase in violence in Columbus and other communities with Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. First up on Columbus Perspective, I'm talking with Kelly O'Reilly, who is the president and CEO of the Ohio Association of Health Plans. How are you? I'm well, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Ohio Association of Health Plans is. We are the trade association, which represents Ohio's health insurance industry. We represent um, 15 health insurance plans that um, provide health insurance to more than 9 million Ohioans. Okay, and you are active right now in an effort to make sure that those on Medicaid receive the coronavirus vaccine. That's right. Um, a, a subset of, of our member plans are the Medicaid managed care plans. They are the plans that provide um, care to about 2.8 million of Ohio's uh, Medicaid consumers. And um, Governor DeWine issued a, uh, a challenge to the managed care plans to really push for increased vaccination numbers in the Medicaid population. Um, and so we are doing all sorts of um, unique and creative things to try to really increase the um, number of, of Medicaid consumers who uh, get out and get their COVID vaccination. And boy, it's a huge effort. 2.8 million, that's that's about a quarter of the state's population. That's right. It's really a challenge. Um, the governor's challenge specifically was to get close to a, a million more uh, Medicaid enrollees um, vaccinated. So yes, it's quite a challenge and takes a lot of uh, coordination amongst the six um, Medicaid managed care plans. They're really working closely together, um, meeting um, multiple times daily to um, coordinate efforts to um, um, look at how we can um, encourage members to, more members to get vaccinated, encourage more providers to provide vaccines um, in, a, in a more convenient way, um, all sorts of, of combined efforts. A lot of these folks have various challenges because of various circumstances. They may have, they may live in a rural area where it's just difficult to have any sort of medical type thing done. They may not have a pharmacy nearby, or if they're, uh, you know, living within a big city somewhere, getting around might be a problem. That's right. I think the the challenges that are are present in the, the Medicaid population have made getting that population vaccinated more difficult. There are, are particular challenges with transportation, um, challenges with work schedules, um, things things along those lines that make it more difficult for that population to get vaccinated. And so that's where we've tried to get creative. Um, we are 
helping with um, free transportation um, for folks through the managed care plans to um, vaccination um, clinics, pharmacies, other opportunities for vaccinations. Um, we're hosting events in all communities across Ohio and providing transportation to those events. Um, we are also um, helping to, in you know, uh, provide um, ways for uh, after-hours uh, vaccination opportunities, so that if you are um, a, a person who has a, a very sort of inflexible nine-to-five schedule, um, and and you know that's the time that your doctor's office is open, we'll, we'll find a, an after-hours opportunity for you to get your vaccine. So we're really trying to help um, remove move those barriers to help um, get this population vaccinated. Talking with Kelly O'Reilly, she's the president and CEO of the Ohio Association of Health Plans. You also have a, an incentive program for pharmacies to be involved in this. That's right. We're working both with pharmacies and doctor's offices um, and, and those provider types as well. Um, we've we found that where we can um, take the opportunity to reach people in the moment. So as they are filling a prescription, as they are in their doctor's office for some other issue, to take advantage of that opportunity when they are there with a trusted provider, whether it's their pharmacist or whether it's their primary care provider, to have the conversation about the COVID vaccine, where we can encourage that to happen through some of these incentives. Um, we're really trying to be creative about doing that. And so we've partnered with the pharmacies to allow um, the, the pharmacist to have um, information in real time about um, whether or not the, the patient that comes in to fill their prescription, whether or not that Medicaid member has been vaccinated. And if not, it then will um, allow that pharmacist to have the conversation with that Medicaid consumer about the COVID vaccine. And if that consumer is interested, they can get that vaccine right there um, on the spot. Um, and, and that pharmacist has the capability then due to some um, increased reimbursement um, to, to provide, take that time and provide that um, vaccination right there on the spot to that member. Um, we're, we're doing something similar with um, providers in the office environment um, where a, a primary care provider originally had a couple of barriers to being able to give vaccinations in their offices. It, it was a little bit more difficult uh, for two reasons. One is um, you, you may recall that there were some difficult storage requirements initially um, with the, the sub-zero freezer requirements. Well, some of those have been removed by the CDC now and the, the manufacturers. And so removing that barrier allowed um, you know, your, your neighborhood doctor's office to, to feel more comfortable potentially about giving the vaccine because they didn't have to have the special equipment. But the other barrier was the 15-minute wait time for observation. That presented a challenge for doctor's offices who didn't have available space. They, they couldn't take up that observation room in, in their office to allow that patient to sit there for the extra 15 minutes um, as was required by the CDC. They had other patients they needed to, you know, get into that room. Um, and so we are, again, um, increasing the rate that the Medicaid managed care plans are paying to the those providers for the administration of that vaccine so as to allow them to lower that patient volume 
allow them to that patient to stay for that 15-minute observation time without impacting that provider's overall patient um, volume um, and, and allows them to take more um, patients to do the COVID vaccinations. So I think it's really going to be a win-win to, to get more of this Medicaid population vaccinated. Talking with Kelly O'Reilly, president and CEO of the Ohio Association of Health Plans. The press release about this says that as of uh, late May, 45 percent of Ohioans overall have been vaccinated. But among Medicaid recipients, it was just 22 percent. And you look at some of the counties around Ohio, Delaware right now leads the state at 60 percent. The lowest is Adams County down in rural southern Ohio at less than 25 percent. And there's a lot of counties, you know, in, in the upper 20s, low 30s. And that's an issue because if a variant comes in that's stronger, you know, this Delta variant they're talking about, and you've got a, a pretty sizable percentage of the population not vaccinated, uh, you know, those areas may not be out of the woods yet. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think uh, we really have to look at um, the, the challenges in those communities where um, the, the vaccination rates overall are lower. And again, similar to this effort with the, with the Medicaid plans working together to be creative and strategic in their approach, I think this, you know, the same holds true when you look at those particular counties. And I know the local health departments are doing just that um, and working with their local communities to say, you know, how can we how can we work in our community to to really raise that rate? Because I think that there are different challenges in different communities, whether it be Appalachia or, you know, a particular, uh, you know, vaccine hesitancy in, in, in an in urban community or what have you. Um, I think that just takes a, a different strategic approach. But I, I think folks are up for that challenge and working really hard towards it. Hopefully, as the statistics come out about the overwhelming, you know, you look at nursing homes in Ohio where there are many nursing homes that have not even had a single case in several weeks. And, you know, there's nothing that can possibly be attributed to that other than the success of the vaccine. That's right. I think we that that is um, really a lesson learned early on with the rollout of the vaccine was the tremendous um, influx of vaccinations going into nursing homes, um, the high, very high percentage of the nursing home population getting vaccinated, and, and the almost um, immediate um, decline in cases and resulting um, illness and death. I mean, it just really is the story um, that shows how we can come out of this um, if we can repeat that success story in the general population. Talking with Kelly O'Reilly, she's president and CEO of the Ohio Association of Health Plans. If folks want more information about this, is uh, is it available online? It is. We have a website set up um, relative to this um, Medicaid push, um, and it is covidvaxonthespot.com. Okay. Uh, I'm assuming vax is V-A-X? That's right. COVIDVaxOnTheSpot.com. Okay. And uh, Kelly, anything else you want to add? No, I appreciate the opportunity um, to, to talk about this great um, work that's going on across Ohio. Um, we're really hopeful that um, this will result in getting more and more of, of the Medicaid population 
um, vaccinated in response to Governor DeWine's challenge. So we're working hard at it and and hoping to be uh, really successful. All right. Thanks for your time and the information today. Thanks so much. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Dave James. And joining me on the phone is Dr. Pompey Young, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Biomedical Services of the American Red Cross. How are you? I am doing very well. Thank you. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about uh, a nationwide severe blood shortage that's going on. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, we are in a state of unprecedented uh, blood shortage across the country. And there are a couple of things going on. One, um, as people are trying to resume some normalcy after a difficult pandemic period, they are traveling more, they're uh, visiting friends and family. And so we have fewer donors coming in. And that situation is uh, amplified uh, by the increase in hospital demand for blood and that we've observed for the last several months. Uh, So those forces combined have resulted in a pretty significant blood shortage. When you look back over the last year plus, even though, uh, you know, a lot of elective surgeries were canceled and people may not have been going in for uh, some kind of work that they would have normally been medical work, it must have been a struggle over the last year just to keep up with blood supplies. supplies right now and and what specifically are you looking for people to help? and 
and encourage them to also uh, schedule an appointment. When people come in for a blood donation, do you still check for coronavirus, and does it matter whether they've had a vaccine or not? Yes, we do ask about, uh, you know, coronavirus, and, and we need for, for donors to come in who are feeling well and healthy. Um, if you've had COVID-19, we wait at least two weeks from the date of the last symptom. So we uh, expect donors to be completely recovered and healthy. In terms of the vaccine, um, it is okay to donate. One is able to donate whether you have the vaccine or not. Um, so it is important that donors realize that, that receiving a vaccine does not in any way change your ability to donate. Talking with Dr. Pompey Young, she's the chief medical officer of biomedical services of the American Red Cross. What are uh, maybe some restrictions to giving blood that some people might run into that isn't like wildly unusual? Um, one of the, the biggest challenges is having a sufficient, you know, blood level, so hemoglobin level. So we, uh, you know, often need to defer people who have low hemoglobin. Um, that's why it's really important for people to, you know, uh, for their own health, uh, you know, continue to, to take in enough iron either through supplements or, or eating the right kind of food. Um, that's probably the most common reason uh, that we are unable to, uh, you know, take someone's donation. And I guess when the blood supply is this low, there's just so many things that could happen. You know, a mass shooting or a, a massive traffic accident that could just be an unbelievable emergency when it comes to the blood supply. You're so right. You know, I was uh, a director of, of, of transfusion medicine for 15 years at a major trauma center. And we would have trauma patients come in that would consume hundreds of units, and many of them uh, consume tons of units. So it's not always just a couple of units for a given patient. Um, someone who is bleeding out rapidly, um, they need blood immediately. And that's true for also some surgeries, particularly liver transplants. Um, those patients can take tens and, and even a hundred uh, unit of, of uh, blood products. So uh, absolutely, the, the crisis is very real, and hospitals need to have those units on the shelf to meet these, these kind of uh, needs of, of our trauma and, and transplant uh, and other surgical patients. And Dr. Young, if somebody does want to give blood, how, how much of their time are they needing to give to do that? How long does it take? Okay, anything else you'd like to add? No, I just want to reiterate the message uh, to the American people to roll up their sleeves and uh, come in and donate. Uh, the easiest way to do that is to go to redcrossblood.org and schedule a donation. Okay, redcrossblood.org. Again, uh, Dr. Pompey Young joining us with the American Red Cross. Thanks so much for the information.
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Ohio's gubernatorial election isn't until next fall, but the race is already heating up. There's going to to be a primary. That should not be shocking to anyone simply because there's virtually always a primary in, in, in the races. We will talk with the Republican who wants Governor DeWine out of the statehouse. I ran against... Governor DeWine, Mike DeWine at that time, candidate DeWine, uh, because I didn't think he was the person to do it. Three and a half years later, I found that to be true. Look at where our state is today. And what his candidacy could reveal about the GOP. And she's been invited to the state house several times to speak about COVID-19. The debunked claims this doctor shared with the legislature that got the country talking. And later. Yeah, it's right. You know, it's always somebody else. We like to call him Millionaire Mark. The conversation he had with his wife about all of that Vaximillion cash. Face the State begins now. for governor of Ohio is shaping up. Governor Mike DeWine has his first major contender. It's Jim Renacci, a former U.S. congressman and a former opponent. As for the Democrats, Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley is the first major candidate to throw her hat into the ring. Thanks for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. If the 2020 presidential election revealed anything about Ohio politics, It's this. Ohio voters are skewing Republican or at the very least, they supported the former president. Fifty three percent of voters voted for former President Trump. Forty five percent voted for current President Joe Biden. But who will Ohio Republicans support at the statehouse? One Quinnipiac poll last year showed DeWine had a higher rating among Democrats than Republicans. Former U.S. Congressman Jim Renacci sees that as an opportunity. You know, the governor will say, well, COVID took all of his energy. The truth of it is um, it didn't have to be a binary choice. When you're governor, you got to worry about everything. Yes, COVID, you got to, but you got to work about businesses, employment. And I think his draconian ways of handling the COVID crisis really put our state in jeopardy and caused many more problems than it should have. Renacci has been critical of Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley and her efforts on gun control. He says mental health should be addressed before guns are taken away. If elected, he says he will take a close look at the budget. Renacci claims the state is spending too much on higher education and Medicare. Governor DeWine, meantime, says a primary challenge isn't unexpected. I'll be laying out uh, my vision for the future of the state of Ohio uh, as we as we move forward. And uh, but, I'm you know, uh, I don't think anyone has uh, had more press conferences, been out more uh, than I have. And, you know, we're now we're now trying to put this uh, pandemic in the rearview mirror. And uh, Ohio is coming out strong. And I feel good, very, very good, frankly, with where we are. Uh, we made tough, tough decisions early on. Um, you know, we cut spending. 
Uh, we've, we froze hiring. You might recall Renacci fell short in his bid for the U.S. Senate back in 2018. He lost to incumbent Senator Sherrod Brown. At Ohio, to the growing list of states where Republicans are proposing a rewrite of state election laws, including banning the placement of ballot drop boxes anywhere except the local elections office, cutting out day of early voting and tightening voter ID rules. Supporters say it's all about integrity. Opponents call those kinds of changes voter suppression. And more grassroots groups are working to push back on proposed changes. Among them, a nonpartisan organization called Secure Democracy, working to protect the tradition of in-person voting. I talked with the executive director, Sarah Walker. She told me that the priority is voter experience over political party or politician. And so regardless of who's in charge, we don't align ourselves with Republicans or Democrats. We align ourselves with the voters' experience. How significant is that when we think about where we are at this time in our nation's history uh, with, you know, some people thinking the election results were rigged and there's a whole thing going on in Congress and, um, you know, the right to vote. I think, unfortunately, the 2020 elections were a catalyst for distrust in our election system across the country. And after Election Day, Americans waited not only days, but sometimes weeks and in some cases even months before some elections results were finalized. And what we're working to do is restore faith in the integrity of our elections and simultaneously improve improve the strength um, and efficiency of our elections administration in a common sense way that can actually modernize elections and not sacrifice access. Walker points to the long lines back in November, socially distanced as voters showed up in droves during the pandemic as an access issue because in Ohio, there can only be one in-person voting location per county. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And one, one location just isn't enough. They should be able to, you should be able to meet the needs. We should trust our local elections officials to be able to decide if you live in a more populous county or more rural county. Um, if you live in a rural county, perhaps you, you don't want someone having to drive all the way across the state, you know, across the county to have to vote. So maybe you need two. But if you live in a more populous county, are you really meeting the needs of just one center? Secure Democracy is also advocating for online voter registration. Walker told me that it could create an equal playing field for everyone to have equal access across the board. It also centralizes the system and creates a uniform way to apply. But in this day and age, people should be able to log onto their computer and register. It doesn't mean that you won't have to like demonstrate that you are um, a, a, a voter, an eligible voter, but it does mean that people will be able to register in a way that makes sense. Secure democracy advocates plan to lobby lawmakers about issues including restoring voter eligibility to Americans who have returned home from prison, ballot tracking, and what are called cure processes that are uniform and allow all voters to fix those small, honest mistakes so that their votes can be counted. The campaign to lead the state's high court is ramping up with newly elected Justice Jennifer Bruner announcing she's running for Chief Justice. Bruner was elected to the Ohio Supreme Court last November. She says that when she was campaigning, she also took note of the protest over the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. Both, in her opinion, signal an opportunity to identify and set the stage for changes in the criminal justice system in our state. 
there are ways that I can do that as an associate justice, but as chief justice, you can sort of help set the direction for the court, and you're in a leadership position to be able to bring people, not just from the criminal justice system, but from the public, from other areas of government, um, together to try to solve systemic problems like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I was so impressed with where the court is in terms of its administrative efficiency and function, and I, I credit Chief Justice O'Connor for that. Mm -hmm. And this would be a situation where, unlike when I walked into the Secretary of State's office, I would not have to do a, a lot of putting the operation back together, it's in a very strong position now where it would be an excellent springboard to to go beyond what the chief's done in terms of bail reform, eliminating sort of the debtor prison concept, and uh, looking at things that are baked into our criminal justice system that we may not even recognize mm -hmm. that are sort of a vestige of that slavery mentality that's been with our country for 150 years or more. I was doing some reading, you said mm -hmm. that uh, Chief Justice role would give you an expanded platform to strengthen the rule of law and direct the focus of Ohio's courts to provide fairness, equality, and respect for all Ohioans. Correct. Um, how does that, do you have an idea of how voters would see that? Well, I, I think one thing voters look at with the court system and with justice is fairness. Mm -hmm. um, and they also want to be treated with respect, whether they're in there for um, viewing a trial, whether they're a defendant in a criminal case, whether they're a litigant in a civil case, they want to be treated with respect. There's compassion shown that way, but I think there's also some loyalty that's built in and trust that's built in um, for the people who are in the process. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the equality piece is just fundamental. Justice Brunner is a former Secretary of State, a former Franklin County and 10th District Court of Appeals judge. Chief Justice O'Connor's term and December of 2022. The Ohio Republican Party chair says, quote, it is hard to fathom why a justice who was elected just over six months ago and has not yet written a majority opinion would ask to be promoted to chief justice. Debunked claims on the state house floor. Who made the invite? And the house speaker is asked, should there be limits on guests? Opened up the door and said, well, I recognize you and shook his hand and and uh, he said, well, congratulations, you just won a million dollars. And a little later, one of the Facts a Million winners is one of our neighbors in central Ohio. But first, let's say you work from home in a city different than your workplace. Who should collect your income tax? The legislation that some leaders say jeopardizes safety. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Working from home became pretty typical during the pandemic. Pew Research found at one point 71% of Americans were doing it in 2020. That's why Governor Mike DeWine signed House Bill 197. It says income taxes will be collected by the municipality where your employer is located, not the city or village where you live. Well, now state lawmakers want to repeal that and allow municipalities to collect income taxes based on your home, not the municipality where you work. Lawmakers want to make this retroactive for last year as well. 10TV's Lacey Crisp explains why some city leaders are fired up. 
In major cities across Ohio, like Columbus, about 50% of the people who work in the city also live here. And with so many people working remotely in the last year, lawmakers are considering sending your income tax dollars home. You can't put your car in drive and reverse at the same time. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther says he's focused on the economic recovery of the city moving forward. Nearly 80 percent of the city's revenue comes from income taxes. The city has already passed a budget for the year, but if a bill proposed by state lawmakers is passed, it means if you're working from home and you live in a different city than your office, your tax dollars will go to the city where you live and it could be retroactive. You can't really change the, the rules of the game uh, and the laws in place uh, after a period of time has already taken place. With much of the budget going towards salaries, cities could be forced to lay off frontline workers. I can say with 100% certainty those conversations will be had uh, should this legislation go through. Uh, we will be looking at longer response times uh, and we could potentially be looking at layoffs. And it's not just bigger cities that will be impacted. It could mean a loss of millions to cities like Dublin, population 50,000. Mayor there predicts it could mean a loss of 25 to $35 million every year. This is not um, something that we can just replicate, uh, and it's going to have a profound impact on what we can do for the region. And could also put into question agreements made between cities and businesses to bring jobs to the area. So we have in excess of 20 economic development agreements, and in those economic development agreements, we revenue share with our businesses. Well, he would not go on camera. Bill co-author Republican Chris Jordan from Powell said in a statement, House Bill 150 is a common-sense tax reform measure that will protect Ohio taxpayers. It is based upon the simple principle that Ohio taxpayers should not be taxed by municipalities where they do not perform work in nor live in. And we reached out to several lawmakers. Many declined to comment. In Columbus, Lacey Crisp, 10TV News. The Ohio Mayor's Alliance says our mayors have made it clear that this provision will be detrimental to the fiscal health of their local communities and to the economic recovery of our state. School's out for summer, but school budget talk continues. Current Ohio House Speaker Bob Cup is reiterating his support for the House plan as part of the state's upcoming two-year $75 billion budget. Speaker Cup says what's called the Fair School Funding Plan is a historic opportunity to do something important for quality education in Ohio. The Senate apparently sees it differently and replaced the plan with its own funding proposal. This all needs to be reconciled by the end of the month. There are questions this morning about who should be allowed to speak at the Statehouse. Sherry Tenpenny testified. She's a doctor from Cuyahoga County, and she spoke during a hearing on House Bill 248. It would crack down on vaccine requirements. At one point, she claimed people who get the vaccine are magnetized. Those claims reached the Washington Post, the Daily Beast, and CNN, and those claims are, of course, false. Here's Franklin County Public Health Commissioner Joe Mazzola. Oh, I haven't heard that, that claim. Well, all I can tell uh, you is, uh, and there are our residents, and, um, you know, is that these vaccines are safe. Um, they have been tested. Um, they have clinically, uh, uh, not only in the, in the clinical setting, uh, but now we have literally hundreds of millions of um, residents across our country have been vaccinated. The CDC posted this bulletin saying, no, receiving a COVID-19 vaccine will not 
make you magnetic. The speaker was invited by lawmakers, and Thursday, House Speaker Bob Cup defended the decision to give them a platform. He said, in part, those kinds of things are aberrations. Most of the people who come to testify provide very valuable information to the committee as they deliberate on proposed legislation. Nearly 200 nursing homes across the state were cited for failing to control the spread of COVID-19, and 10 investigates has found they later got bonus payments from the federal government worth millions. This news doesn't sit well for the people who have lost loved ones or a nursing home watchdog. That group says the payments fail to hold these facilities accountable. Here's Chief Investigative Reporter Bennett Haverly. And, you know, when you put somebody in a facility like that, you're expecting to, um, you know, be provided good care. Stephen Short described his late uncle as a businessman who gave back. Harry Robert Evans is also one of more than 7,500 long-term care residents in Ohio who died after contracting COVID-19. His death in August came during a stay at Newark Care and Rehabilitation. An outbreak here led to Stephen's outrage. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he, uh, he was a good man. And... Uh... Uh, after him, he's the, uh, after, after his uh, death, I have one, my mother left on that side, and that's it. So, you know, so it's a hard thing. It's not entirely clear who infected the 85-year-old, but the facility was later cited by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services for inadequate infection control. During an August survey, health inspectors wrote that based on CDC guidance, the facility failed to perform adequate contact tracing to properly identify, quarantine, and appropriately test all residents with known exposure to a staff member who tested positive for COVID-19. Inspectors also noted that the facility's failure likely contributed to the COVID-19 outbreak that spread throughout the facility, infecting 71 residents, resulting in 20 deaths. CMS hit Newark Care and Rehab with a $459,000 civil monetary penalty. But in the months that followed, the federal government also awarded that same facility another $153,000 in incentive payments when COVID cases went down. It's unbelievable because, you know, how, how does the federal government you know, incentivize somebody like that and, and help them out. It didn't just happen here. This facility and this one and this one, all of which were cited for infection control issues, later got bonus payments from the federal government as part of a $2 billion portion of the CARES Act. The monies were rewarded to nursing homes and long-term care facilities that showed improvement in cases and infections during a given month, regardless of what happened in previous months. In fact, 10 investigates found of the 247 facilities in Ohio cited for infection control issues, 195 of them also got these bonus incentive payments. And in 80% of those cases, the amount of money from the bonus payments completely covered the cost of the civil monetary penalties. Really, those monies are from us. These are taxpayer subsidized dollars. Uh, they are being given right back to the nursing homes. Brian Lee is a former nursing home regulator who now runs a patient advocacy nonprofit. He says the federal government's incentive payments fail to hold these facilities to account for their missteps. If you take a deep breath and smell the smell of dead bodies are piling up in those two, those other waves of outbreaks, it's like the feds just neglected all of that and had the blinders on just to look at what was going good at, at a good period. But a spokesman for the Ohio Healthcare Association, which represents 1,100 long-term care providers, acknowledged the payments weren't based on past issues. It's not looking at, did you improve your infection control practices? 
um, at least not directly. Mm-hmm. But the optics of all of this just seems goofy to some people at home, I would imagine. Yeah, it's been it's been pointed out. I've left uh, several messages. Newark Care and Rehab hasn't returned our repeated calls seeking comment, and a former administrator declined to be interviewed. We did hear from Country Court in Mount Vernon and Otterbein at Gehanna, both of which received infection control fines and bonus payments. They each sent us separate statements that included very similar phrases, including this one, quote, survey history and or receipt of isolated deficiencies that may have occurred should not be the basis for denying critical resources for any provider or nursing home resident. But for family members like Stephen, still grieving a loss, he disagrees. Nothing's going to bring him back. But, you know, again, when you blatantly do things that cause people to um, lose their lives, you shouldn't receive anything. Bennett Haberly, 10 Investigates. To search which nursing homes get incentive payments and fines in your area, look for this story at our website, 10tv.com. Mark Klein from Richwood, you just won $1 million in the Maximilian giveaway. Congratulations to you. Central Ohio had its first winner in the Maximilian drawing. Mark Klein from the town of Richwood in Union County took home the prize. He tells us he was watching 10TV when Governor DeWine showed up to break the news. 10TV's Angela Reigert takes it from there. <laughs> we just just have a, you know, just the word starting to spread. Mark Klein can't believe it. So who wins, right? You know, it's always somebody else. I, I never expected I would win. Especially not like this. He was home watching TV, and then he hears the doorbell. My wife looked on the ring cam and said, there's some guys out there in suits. And not just any guy, this guy, Governor Mike DeWine. I opened up the door and said, well, I recognize you, and shook his hand, and and uh, he said, well, congratulations, you just won a million dollars. I uh, opened up the door and yelled into my wife and told her, hey, we won a million dollars. And then I kind of thought about it a second. And I said, no, I won a million dollars because you didn't register. <laughs> Any idea what you're going to do with all that money? Uh, well, my family's already making plans for a beach vacation, but, um, you know, just help out family. Um, I'm retired, so, you know, I'm, it's not like I'm dying for money, but it certainly is a, a you know, life changer to, to, you know, win a, a nice amount of money like that and, you know, can help others that, you know, kind of need something. And while that money changes a lot, it hasn't changed his mind on this. I think it's real important that everybody gets the vaccine. Um, you know, everybody that doubts it, it was no big deal. Two little pinches and you were done. I've, I've hurt myself more doing things around the house than what the, what the vaccine did. Reporting in Union County, Angela Rigard, 10 TV News. Congratulations to him. Mark Jones says he's not sharing with his wife because, as you heard, she didn't sign up for the program. But he's a for better or for worse guy, for richer or poor guy, I'm sure. Thank you all for being here with us today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we are here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV.
How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dwayne Casares. He's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. Hey, Dwayne, how you doing? I'm doing good, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, we're continuing to emerge from the pandemic. Uh, how are things going at Directions for Youth? It's going all right, but you're not emerging very... I, when are we going to be, in, you know, person to person? I mean, I, I need to see you, but, you know, <laughs> it's a... Uh, we need to move off the phone and get back into uh, the studio, Dave. Hopefully it will be within a couple of months. Let's let's hope. But tell us what, what your agency does, what you do. We're a, uh, a nonprofit uh, social service agency. We have a uh, army uh, of uh, therapists and counselors, like over 50, that um, work with kids in the community. They start to going uh, back out as schools started opening up. So did our therapists start uh, going back out in the field. As an agency, we're about 97%, 98% uh, vaccinated. So uh, we're still taking safety precautions and things like that. But um, like many other businesses, we're starting to get back to the normal business of what we do on a regular basis. We also have two after-school programs that those are also open up for summer programming. Now, we still mandate many guidelines of, of mask wearing and things like that there just because a lot of our kids who attend are under the ages of 12. And we want to make sure whether you're vaccinated or not, um, all of our workers need to uh, uh, be aware of the fact that we don't want to put anybody at risk. But those are opened up. Um, and we are uh, starting to get back to what we were doing before. That's got to be a good feeling, though. For an agency like yours that deals with such important issues that can be greatly impacted by something like a pandemic to finally get some sense of normalcy back's got to be huge yeah and it really is and you know it, it's 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 really kind of gratifying too for our staff to be experienced the fact that a, a lot of the clients that they serve uh, the kids the families are so excited to see them again like in person so um you know it that that does a lot to, to one's disposition when um you know that not being able to meet face to face Kids that are, you know, I don't know, 10 to 15 years old, uh, or really all of us, I guess, at any age. But this experience, 20 years from now, they're going to be talking about how they spent an entire year away from school because of this thing. And it's a learning and growing experience maybe that could benefit them down the line when something chaotic happens in their life. Yeah, you know, and it's really about what what we do in all counseling, you know. We're all going to learn from challenges within our life, and hopefully, I mean, I will hopefully what we do is help people assist them in their growth and development from these uh, uh, um, things that they end up experiencing. So uh, at other times, it, it, it can take an unhealthy uh, direction, um, but hopefully that most people will take this as an opportunity to learn and grow and, and contribute to their development. 
Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. Uh, we, uh, we're going to talk about the kind of uh, shift or problems, uh, concerns that seem to be developing in society in general. Yeah, you and I were kind of talking about that initially when we first just started looking at the, uh, the murder rate here in Columbus and what that looks like and what are all the factors. There are so many factors that I think uh, feed into these things. And, and, and it's just such a different, challenging time coming out from where we're coming out of. I, I think there's so many uh, uh, variables that feed into this. Um, but it is actually uh, um, becoming very, very problematic for many of the people uh, that we serve in really the city as a whole. We had 175 murders in Columbus last year. That was a record. But when you go from, uh, you know, say June 1st of last year to June 1st of this year, more than well over 200, more than 210. And it just doesn't seem to be abating. And this is happening in big cities all across the country. It is. And, and it unfortunately doesn't look like it's going to trend in the other direction anytime soon. You know, I think there's just so many volatile things that are out there. And so many things happen within the past year, year and a half. Um, that I think have contributed to that. And now that we're starting to uh, come out of this kind of COVID isolation gradually, uh, unfortunately, I think it's going to um, create opportunities for more of it to happen. I mean, major things have happened, Dave. The whole social justice movement has uh, um, has life now, and, um, and many people are... are- the pedal to the metal, and, and certainly as a social service agency, um, we totally believe in, in social justice. But there are those who oppose it. You know, it, it's you know we had this election that um, some people still you know argue whether it was fair or whether we got the, the results right. But that has divided people. I mean, it, it certainly has. You know, COVID alone. Um, with some of its restrictions and are you going to get vaccinated? Am I not? Do I have to wear a mask? Do I not? And we're starting to see these things out in public. Uh, It's almost to a point that I think sometimes we start to normalize dysfunctional behavior and it gets dangerous when you normalize it to the point that you no longer recognize it. It's dysfunctional, but you embrace it as the norm. Right. We had in Georgia the other day somebody uh, who shot a store clerk in an argument about wearing a mask, shot and killed them. child whose parents are murdered, is there a, a general sort of attitude that they will develop without help? Is it is it anger? Is it bitterness? Is it depression? What happens? You know, you know it's interesting. A lot of people look at like the five stages uh, of recovery or bereavement. Um, uh, first off, let's be very clear. Uh, these are not concrete stages that everybody, everybody mourns in different ways. Everybody gets through it in different ways. You have to be respectful of that. I think those things are fine as guidelines. Um, uh, but they're not necessarily even in any order that uh, uh, 
um, truly respects people as individuals. With kids, it's a little bit different. Um, actually, when we first developed this program, we really, we structured it around the, uh, the way we have other programs, which is around a six-month model. Um, and when we first uh, looked at our, our initial group's outcomes, oh my goodness, Dave, we were horrible at it. We were making all the kids worse. But unless you're going to be honest about your data, you're never going to learn and grow. So we, too, had to take that upon ourselves and re-examine the structure of the program. What was happening is our comps program, the average age is probably seven years old. These are our very young kids. So from a cognitive developmental standpoint, um, we were getting them to the point of actually getting out of just denial and, and starting to accept the loss. Well, of course you're going to feel worse about that then. Um, and uh, and we were doing our measurement then when, in fact, it really was a sign that we were progressing because um, uh, at least now they were starting to deal with it. So we had to lengthen the program. We added a group component to it, which had to go away during COVID. It, it, and I know you can have group Zoom calls, but confidentiality is huge. And seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds who are in a, uh, on a, a Zoom call, they're probably not alone. So then right. we, we just we, we had to drop that part. But um, that will be coming back as well. Uh, that program it has individual counseling, it has family counseling, and it has group counseling because when you're talking about a child working through the grieving process and you don't want uh, the trauma of that to have you know long-term impact, you have to deal with it now. So while we do it from a a multi-stemmed approach. And that's a pretty unique program, even from a statewide perspective, right? Yes, it is. Um, uh, Actually, when we developed it, uh, and we did, there was only one other program in the state uh, that actually uh, dealt. There's always been programs for parents of murdered children, but not children of murdered parents and siblings. Uh, And I think many people deal with it on on an individual basis in in therapy, but... um, we do it as, as a group, and lots of times kids need to see that they're not alone in their suffering um, and that there actually can be a lot of healing being around other kids who are experiencing the same thing. Kids that are living in neighborhoods where some of these violent crimes have been happening, and then you know they may be watching it on the news, and, and I remember you making a great point once about, I think it might have been a terrorist attack, and that is that when kids see this stuff, little kids see this stuff on the news, every time they see it, it's a new event to them. They don't put in their head the idea that it's the same story being told over and over again. Right, and depending on the age, when they see it so much, and it's like, oh my goodness, it's happening again. Oh my goodness, it's happening again. Is this going to happen to me? Um, so we have to have open discussions with kids about all these things. It's uh, um, Because you don't know how they're absorbing it. You really do not know. You, we're adults. Um, so we're going to interpret things certain ways. We certainly do know that's just the news showing the same thing over and over and over. Um, we got to make sure that, that um, we recognize that kids look at things and hear things and see things uh, uh, and understand things differently and, and check in with them and not avoid it, but um, to make sure that they're not re-traumatizing themselves over something that really isn't reality. And when, when these things are happening, all these uh, murders in Columbus, you know, I, I'm sure that in those neighborhoods there are are moments when everybody's out out of their house talking to neighbors on the street about what happened and the kids are just absorbing this entire concerned environment and it's just got to be really unsettling for them well the hard thing is um 
you know, self-preservation does an awful lot. The human body is just kind of amazing. I, I, you know, at times people say, well, you guys are outreach. You go into every neighborhood. Some neighborhoods are higher, and people would tell us, you know, you guys are still going even in there. We do things safely because we know on an outreach basis. We're also known in the community uh, in many places, so there's a, a kind of a familiarity and a protection with that. But the truth of the matter is what well, we have to remind our staff all the time, don't put yourself at risk. But the seven, second part of that is just remember, there are two, three, and four-year-olds that have to call that environment home. Um, and and that, doesn't, that, that shouldn't exclude them from getting assistance. Talking with Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. You indicated, too, uh, that, uh, you know, there's been political uprising like we've never seen in our lifetime. And also there's just a lot of disgruntled workers, you know, either over pay or maybe uh, they want more flexible schedules now because some of them have been working from home. There's just a whole lot of wholesale changes in attitude going on across the board. Well, even just a lack of child care, daycare, this is, you know, when, when, you know, we've been in this thing where a lot of people are working from home now, all of a sudden, you know, this happened to my son, he went to work on a Monday, he was working only two days a week, and they said, starting tomorrow, you, you need to be back full time. Uh, that wasn't enough time to plan for anything if he had kids at home, and, um, and we've all been working these different schedules, or, hey, I've been able to do it at home, so there's a lot of challenges to all of this. Uh, a lack of daycare is a serious problem. You know, you want people to get back to work, uh, but there's not facilities for to have somebody um, to watch your children. This is tough. Um, so uh, all these things are just adding, I think, to the stress that people are having. You know, there's a big push about a living wage. Um, we've seen who our essential workers were, and some of our essential workers are the lowest paid people in our communities. And, and so this is a challenge. Um, uh, all of these things are just layering themselves on top of each other and, and creating this this kind of angst out there that you can almost just sense on a pretty regular basis. Well, the baseball and the soccer crowds are back. In just a few months, the Browns will be beating the crap out of the Steelers again. Uh, you know, I mean, th- <sighs> things will be returning to normal. Uh, yeah, that's, that was not the normal, and you know that. If one year does not erase the last 20. Anyway, I mean, the bigger issues are heading before the pandemic and before uh, um, all the other things that happened this past year is uh, Game of Thrones ended with a very bad ending, and um, Ozark decided not to have another season. So these are the things that really matter, Dave. Okay. You lost me on that. It really did. <laughs> so the sense of normalcy, though, that's got to be, in general, I mean, that has to be good emotionally, cognitively for everybody, I would think. Well, yeah, I think, you know, we look at things from cognitive, emotional, and and the third tier of that is behavioral. So um, you can think and be educated all you want and read about these things. You can feel certain things, but now to have the action around it, to be able to interact with other people um, as things start to open up, to be able, as one of our board members today said, um, they're going to meet, they had to sign off because they're going to a meeting and they need time to get to the meeting because it's his first meeting without Zoom. Um, and uh, so these things, there is a normalcy that's starting to set in. He was very excited. I, I you know, I, people are getting excited about being able to see each other again. Uh, um, I, I would tell you, you know, our, our, our golf league started and, you know, that's outdoors. It feels safe. But um, we decided to go out afterwards. And I, at first I thought this feels awkward. Like, are you really going to go into a place where there's other people? There's a lot of people here, um, even though I am vaccinated. Everyone in our league is, uh, uh, which is odd that we have.
had to have those types of discussions, right. um, <laughs> but we did. Um, but I think as we start to ease back into it, hopefully, um, you know, that, that will contribute to uh, part of our social networks and part of that, that support system that all of us need uh, to get through things on a regular basis, and, and hopefully that will have a positive impact. And with your agency dealing with kids primarily, uh, once school is completely back to a regular normal schedule and they've got graduations and basketball games and football games, uh, that's, that's gonna, just going to be a huge difference. Yeah, I, I think it will be. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that everybody will start to make some of these adjustments really in a positive direction. Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. If folks want info about your agency, Dwayne, where do they find it? Uh, they can check us out at uh, dfyf.org, or they can call our intake department, 614-294-2661. All right. Thanks, Dwayne. Thank you, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.